Shabbat Shalom. This is Shabbat Shuva, the Sabbath of repentance, the Sabbath right before Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So I'm just going to go quickly through the Torah portion for this week because I want to get on to something else which I think is more important uh, in regards to the Sabbath that it is, Shabbat Shuva. So let's summarize Ve'elach before we go any further. Ve'elach is our Torah portion for this week, and it's one of the shortest Torah portions uh, when there is a leap year because uh, usually Ve'elach is combined with another Torah portion to make it longer, but Ve'elach is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 31, and it means, and uh, and he went, and he went. Now, so let's summarize. Uh, chapter 31, verses 1 through 8. This is, uh, according to tradition, the seventh of Adar on the Hebrew calendar. Therefore, it's Moses' birthday. He's 120 years old, and he tells the people that he's going to die today. And so he's not uh, he, he is unable to go in and out with them. Not that he's too weak, not that he's too feeble, but the scripture says that his strength and his eyes were not abated, that they were strong. He was, you know, just as youthful as he was way back when as he is today at 120. So going out and coming in is a military term. He's like, I can no longer go on to military campaigns with you, go out and conquer the land and come back to camp. Um, so what he does is his protege, the individual that has been by his side through thick and thin, through everything, he was actually on Mount Sinai, just outside the glory cloud where Moses was in the glory cloud, but Joshua was just outside. Uh, remember, when, he, when Moses came down with the Torah, uh, with the law, with the Ten Commandments, uh, uh, Joshua saying, I, "I hear, you know, that, that that you know, there's there's war in the camp. You know, there's there's tumult." And Moses is like, "No, that's not the sound of chaos. That's that's the sound of singing. There must be some sort of celebration going on." So we all know about the golden calf incident. And so uh, Joshua, uh, whenever Moses would leave the tent of meeting after meeting with the Lord, uh, Joshua would stay behind. So he is the most qualified to take over the leadership. So Moses passes the reins of leadership to Joshua in front of all the leaders. They accept him as the new leader. So verses 9 through 18, Moses initiates a seven-year celebration. So every sabbatical year, there's to be a public reading of the entire Torah of Deuteronomy. This took place by the priests, and when kings started to rise in Israel, it was the king's responsibility to read the entire Torah uh, to the nation every seven years during the festival of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. And men, women, and children, everybody was supposed to be there, even you know, uh, Gentiles who, who were living among uh, the Hebrew people. They were to attend as well. Uh, all right, so. Now, after the Torah reading, it's as if um, Israel is renewing the covenant, renewing the vows. It's, it's like almost a refresher course. So like my wife, uh, she's certified uh, as a nurse, but there's certain aspects of, of her job uh, being a nurse to where she has to get recertified for certain things. CPR is one of them. So she goes every so often to get recertified. So it's not like that they're taking these vows again, like they're uh, like Israel is getting remarried to God. They married God at Sinai. Uh, they renewed the vows on the edge of Moab, as we're reading here. But every seven years, it was just kind of like a celebration, an anniversary celebration every seven years, just a refresher course of the Torah, because they didn't have physical copies of the Torah, if you'll remember. Now, 
Finally, verses 19 through 30, Moses tells uh, tells them that he's about to um, introduce to them a song, and we know how catchy jingles are. I mean, how many still know the ABC song? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right. And if I went ba-da-ba-ba-ba, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about McDonald's. Jingles are catchy. We associate rhythms and songs with certain things. A lot of times in history class, uh, you know, you were made to memorize the Gettysburg Address. Some people put it to music or to a rap to help them to remember it, etc. So Moses puts, uh, puts uh, this song. And so, um, so it'll get stuck in the hearts of the people, and they'll remember um, God's commandments. They'll remember that their heart is prone to rebel against God, and uh, it will keep them on track and keep them straight, and it will be also kind of a witness against them. Now, it's interesting that the entire Torah is put to a melody, put to a chant, put to a rhythm. And so in Yeshua's day, uh, rabbis had memorized Genesis to Deuteronomy by heart, because there's a special cantation uh, with the reading of the Torah, so it's therefore more memorable, and it sticks with you longer than just a regular memory verse. It's put to a rhythm, put to a tune, your mind retains it better. So the entire Torah is chanted, and the Torah portions are chanted every single week in synagogue before the rabbi gives up to give the drosh, to give the sermon, to give the message. So that is the summaration of this week's Torah portion, Vayelech, and he went out. And uh, so let's uh, go on and um, let's observe this Shabbat Shuva with a message that I believe that the Lord has given me for you today. Baruch at Adonai Hamvarak. Blessed is Adonai, the Blessed One. Baruch Adonai Hamvarak Leolam Vayed. Blessed is Adonai, the Blessed One, for all eternity. Baruch at Adonai. Eloheinu Melech Olam Asher Bakarbanu Mikoha Amim. Venetan Lanu et Torato. Baruch at Adonai. Noten HaTorah. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe who has selected us from all peoples and gave us his Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. And as it says in Psalm 119.18, let this be our prayer. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of thy Torah. So uh, today is, as I said before, Shabbat Shuva. Shuva means to turn. In the Hebrew, it means to do a 180. You're going in one direction, you turn around, and you go back in the other direction. It means to return to the source. So it is the Sabbath of return, the Sabbath of repentance, repenting of our sins and returning to the Lord, Shabbat Shuvah. It's the Sabbath that falls in the during the 10 days of all between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. So let me just ask this question, because a lot of times people will look at Judaism and look at all the customs and traditions and say, wow, they got a lot of made-up things. You know, wow, they got a lot of stuff that they just kind of thrown in there. But whatever they have is based on Scripture. It is extrapolated from Scripture. There's nothing there that is just, just for the fun of it or just for the heck of it. It's as if the Word of God is a bridge. You've got the pillars. You've got the steel beams and the girders and everything that makes up the bridge. But what truly gives the bridge its strength, it's the cross beams between the pillars. It's those cables that are keeping the bridge together and keeping it strong and fortifying it. And so that is the traditions and customs that we get from the Word. 
There's nothing wrong with customs and traditions, but if those customs and traditions take precedence over the word of God itself, that's where the problem lies. And so that's what Yeshua was always uh, challenging the Pharisees on is when they took their traditions and put them above God's laws themselves because the traditions are supposed to draw us closer to God and supposed to reinforce what the Word of God says. So where do Jews get the idea that heavenly books are opened and are reviewed on Rosh Hashanah, the uh, Yom Teruah, otherwise known as Feast of Trumpets, and are examined for 10 days and then they're sealed on Yom Kippur, sealed on the Day of Atonement or the Day of Judgment? Well, of course, they don't have a New Testament, do they? So where do they get this? They get this from the book of Daniel. So um, Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, starting with verse 9. We're going to read uh, 9 and 10 and 13. Now, whatever is in the what we call the Old Testament, what the, what the Hebrews call the Tanakh, is reiterated and backed up in the New Testament, the renewed covenant scriptures. So in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, it says this, and this is a vision that Daniel had. He says, while I was watching, thrones were set up. Oh, thrones, plural. Okay, you've got God's throne, but thrones. In Revelation, it says that there's going to be 12 thrones, and it's going to be, you know, the, 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 the 12 elders or the apostles. So I think that's interesting. And it says, uh, 12, uh, while I was watching, thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days, which is a just another name for God, took his seat. His garment was as white as snow. On Yom Kippur, we wear white garments. Uh, I remember attending in Nashville, Tennessee at the uh, Orthodox Synagogue there, and the rabbi had it looked like a, what, what was a white graduation gown. And uh, there's certain traditions, like uh, leather is seen, is seen as a luxury. So he didn't wear dress shoes. He just had a simple pair of Chuck Taylor canvas tennis shoes, which is kind of weird to see on a rabbi. It says, the Ancient of Days took his throne. His garment was as white as snow. His hair of his head was pure like wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels uh, are burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him, and thousands of thousands attended him, and ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books, notice plural, books, the books were opened. Jumping down to verse 13, I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man. The Son of Man is given is the title given to none other than Messiah Yeshua, the Messiah. Behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was brought into his presence. Now, the New Testament parallel, or the Renewed Covenant parallel, is in Revelation. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Verses uh, 11 through 13. <clears throat> Revelation 20, 11 through 13. Then I saw a great white throne, and the one seated on it. The earth and heaven fled from his presence, but no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before his throne. 
The books, notice again, books, plural. The books were opened, and another book was opened. So besides these other books, there was another book, the Mac Daddy of them all, if you will, if you will the Book of Life. In other places, it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And what does it say? It says, the dead were judged according to what was written in the books, plural, according to their deeds. Now, I want to make a clarification. I don't want there to be any misunderstanding whatsoever. Bottom line, we are saved by grace through faith. Bottom line, yet we are judged by our works. We are not saved by our works, but we are rewarded and or punished according to our works. Sometimes maybe you've heard that, uh, you know, you do a good deed, you get a jewel in your crown. You know, in my house were many mansions and some people are going to have different rewards or whatever, depending on what we did. So we are not saved by our works, but we are rewarded and or punished because of our works. James says that uh, we prove our faith by what? We're our works. James says we prove our faith by our works. So in Revelation eleven eighteen, it says the nations were, uh, let's see. It says, the nations were enraged, but your wrath has come, and the time for the dead to be judged, to reward your servants, the prophets, and the holy ones, those who fear your name, the small and the great. So in Revelation 11, it's talking about the rewards for the deeds done in, in one's life. So Revelation 22:12 says, behold, I'm coming soon. And my reward is with me to pay back each one according to their what? Works, Works or deeds. Now, in Matthew, we kind of get a fuller picture of this. In Matthew, the parable of the talents. Matthew 25, 14 through 30, for the sake of time, I won't go into it because there's a lot of other passages that I want to get to. But in Matthew chapter 25, 14 through 30 is the parable of the talents. You know, there were uh, three guys and they were all given different amounts, different sums of money called talents. And we had two of them that, that invested them and got back a return and they were rewarded they were rewarded for investing those talents, that money, that, that, that gift that, that God had given them. But the one who hid it, he was punished because he had no works to reward. And then right after that, we have in Matthew 25, the same chapter, verses 31 through 46, he goes into further detail about the rewards and punishments and talks about the sheep and the goats. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And this is the reward and punishment according to the according to one's works or lack thereof. So in James uh, chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, it's our works, not just our works. Anybody can do works. But it's our works through faith that count and are rewarded. I can give anybody a cup of cold water. But that don't count. But if I give a cup of cold water because I love Jesus, if I give a cup of cold water so as to minister to somebody else, to give God the glory, that's the good work that's going to count. Oh, look at me. I'm giving a cup of cold water to somebody. Everybody's going to think that I'm nice being, being nice to this thirsty person, and everybody's going to think that I'm holy and righteous. No, 
You're still doing the work, but it doesn't count as a reward because you're doing it for yourself. You're doing it for a backpat. And what did Yeshua say about the Pharisees who blow the trumpet in the streets and get everybody's attention and all of a sudden give alms to the poor? He says they have their reward. They like to be called, you know, rabbi in the synagogues and they make their, they make their seat seats long. In other words, their seat seat are big and fat and they, they run the ground. Oh, look, his seat seat, the longer his seat seat, the more righteous he is. No, he's doing it for show. He's got his reward. And it says he makes their tefillin broad or the phylacteries broad, which is the, the little black boxes that Jews wear on their, uh, we wear on our foreheads and arms when we pray. It says they make them broad. In other words, make them stand out. And in a lot of uh, anti-Semitic uh, paintings and writings, the tefillin was seen as a horn coming out of a Jew's head, interestingly enough. And so the Lord said they have their reward. They just want the accolades of men. And what Yeshua said, he says, whatever you do in secret will be rewarded. You don't have to blow a trumpet. You don't have to let everybody know. You'll be rewarded. What you do in secret will be, be rewarded openly, some translations say. So Isaiah chapter 46, verse 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteousness, in other words, all the works and deeds we do in and of ourselves without faith, without God, because we want to be patted on the back and get brownie points, for all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteousness is like, King James puts it nicely, filthy rags. But if you want to know what the Hebrew says, minstrel rags. I don't think I have to go into any more detail than that. So it says that our righteous deeds are like filthy minstrel rags. They don't count. It's only the works we do through faith and because of our love and dedication to the Lord that's going to count. And that means anything in God's eyes. So our good works in and of ourselves is worthless. Only the good works we do in and through the Holy Spirit counts. And Hebrews 9, 27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, then after that, the judgment. 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5, 10 for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Messiah so that each one may receive what is due. Remember I said we're saved by grace, but our works are rewarded or we get rewards or punishments. It says each one may receive what is due for the things he did in the body, whether good or bad. So, you know, I know that there's a big misconception that there's a big scale in heaven and you've got your good deeds and bad deeds. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, oh, you're saved, you're going to heaven. No, that's not it. No. Your good deeds and bad deeds have nothing to do with your salvation. Nothing. That's a whole set. It's a real thing, but it's a whole separate thing. See, your, your lost condition <laughs> is on one side of the scale and Yeshua's sacrifice is on the other and his sacrifice outweighs yours. So therefore, that's why you're saved. Daniel, again, 7.10 says, the court was seated and the books, plural, were opened. So what are these books? Can we know what these books are? I found a few of them. I don't know if that's all of the books in heaven, 
But I found at least six, and I think that's interesting because six symbolizes what? The number of a man. Six is man. I think it is, I'm probably going to get this wrong because I'm not a scientist, but we have six electrons, six neutrons, and six protons, or something like that, that make up man. Six, 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 kind of interesting. It's the number of a man. So six is man's number. It's interesting that there's six books, at least six books that I could find. So the first one is the most obvious, the Lamb's Book of Life. So in Psalm 69, 28 through 29, it says, Add guilt to their guilt. May they not come into your righteousness. May they be wiped out of the book of life and not be recorded with the righteous. So the Lamb's Book of Life is for only those who are saved. Only those who have admitted their guilt, admitted their sin, admitted that there's nothing in and of themselves they can do to make themselves righteous before God, but casting themselves on the mercy of God and asking that Yeshua's sacrifice would atone for their sins, accepting what Yeshua did on the cross in place of themselves. What Yeshua did on the cross and three days in the tomb would take us an eternity to do, and an eternity does not end. For us to pay for our own sins means we would have to spend eternity in hell. Yeshua only spent hours on the cross and three days in, in the tomb, three days in the grave, in hell, in Hades, if you will, to accomplish what would take us an eternity to do. So that's what the Lamb's Book of Life is. Revelation 20:15. Anyone was not found written in the Book of Life, he was thrown out into the lake of fire. So other passages that talk about the, the book of life is Revelation 13, 8, 21, 27, and 22, 19. So the Lamb's Book of Life is kind of like uh, one of these special reservations. Like you go to a fancy restaurant and you have to call ahead of time and you go up to the, to the, the porter or whatever and say, uh, you know, yeah, I, I got our table reserved. Okay, what's your name, sir? Oh, Shoemaker. Oh, that's in, um, oh, I'm not finding it here. Are they going to let me in that restaurant if my name is not on that registry book that, that you know, to reserve a table? No, they're going to boot me out. Somebody else is going to take that table if my name's not there. And if your name is not found in the Lamb's Book of Life, you're not going to be in heaven. He's not going to say to you, welcome in, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joys of the Lord. And so it's simple to know if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, if you have made that decision to say, you know what, I'm a sinner, and there's nothing that I can do to save myself. Anything that I can do to save myself is like filthy minstrel rags. It's like fig leaves. What Adam and Eve used to try to cover their nakedness and their faults and their sins. But it's the blood of Yeshua that makes atonement. That covers, not just covers so you don't see it anymore. It eradicates, it obliterates, it takes it away. So the second book that, is, that we can find in Scripture is the book of remembrance. This might also be called the book of good deeds. So this is a record of all the good deeds performed through him during your life because Malachi 3.16 says, Then those uh, who revere Adonai spoke with each other, and Adonai took notice and heard, and a scroll and or book of remembrance was written before him for those who revere Adonai, even those who esteem his name. So whenever, whenever we do anything out of 
the righteous fear of the Lord out of respect, love, and reverence, and loyalty, faithfulness, dedication to him, whatever we do in his name is written in the book of remembrance, in the book of good deeds. Now, this isn't something strange to history because we even see that kings did this. They kept record of the good deeds of their subjects. We even find this in the Bible in uh, Esther chapter 6. We see that the king couldn't sleep one night. And so, you know, what puts anybody to sleep is a good, boring book. You know, just a monotone, boring book. You fall asleep, right? So they bring him this record. But instead of putting him to sleep, it stimulated him because it talked about Mordecai foiling an assassination plot against the king. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a second. Is, has anything been done for this guy? Has he been rewarded for his good deed? No, sir. There's no record here. Hmm, I wonder what I could do. Wonder what I could do. Oh, by the way, Haman's outside wanting to say, oh, well, bring him in. So, Haman, let me ask you something. What should I do for a guy that I want to reward? And Haman's thinking, well, who else would he want to reward but me? I'm his right-hand man. Oh, king, he should wear one of your garments and one of your crowns and be put on a steed and be marched to the city and say, this is how the king rewards people that he is pleased with. That's a great idea, Haman. You go do this for Mordecai the Jew. He was going to go and ask if Mordecai could be hung on a gallows, and here he has to be humiliated and parade him around and praise him in the streets. So we see that this book of remembrance is even done throughout history with secular earthly kings, how much more so for our heavenly king. So as I said, imagine two scales, and one scale uh, has forgiveness, and the other scale has condemnation. Your condemnation is you're born a sinner. There's no way out of that. You're just doomed from the get-go. But the forgiveness comes with Yeshua and his shed blood. That tips the scales in your favor. That salvation. Yeshua's sacrifice is put on the forgiven side of the scale and outweighs the condemnation or sin side of our scale. That our salvation, that for our salvation we did do nothing to earn it, because Ephesians 2:9 says. It is a gift. Salvation is a gift from God. Why? So that no man can boast. Oh, look what I did to become saved. Uh -uh. So the second scale is the traditional scale that a lot of people think of as good and bad. Our good and bad deeds are put on a scale, and this determines our reward in heaven, how many jewels in our crown, if you will. So we're rewarded according to our deeds. And I've just backed that up several times with various scripture. So let's move on to the third book. The third book is the book of evil, or we might also call it the book of bad deeds. So all of our sins and our bad deeds are recorded in that book. And you know, it doesn't matter if your book of bad deeds is thicker than the book of your good deeds. It really doesn't matter if you know Yeshua, because he nullifies all that in a sense. We get our punishments and rewards as a result of those books, but as far as our salvation, it doesn't matter. So Ecclesiastes... 12, 13, and 14 says this. A final word when all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this applies to all mankind. You have philosophers that have been pondering for centuries, hmm, what is the meaning of life? That's the meaning of life right there, to fear God and to keep his commandments. This applies to all mankind. And then it says, God will bring every deed into judgment including everything that is hidden, whether good or bad. I'm at home by myself. 
Nobody knows I'm here. Nobody can see me. It's not going to matter if I go onto this little site and see a little bit of nudity. Nobody will ever know. God knows. It's a hidden from everybody else, but it is not hidden from his sight. Good deeds. You know what? This, this family is starving to death. I'm going to buy some groceries, and when nobody's looking, I'm going to put it on their front doorstep. Nobody will ever know that I've been there, and they won't know who, who it's from. That is a good deed that has been done in secret. And what does it say here? Including everything that is hidden, whether good or evil, will be brought out on Judgment Day. So you have the book of evil or the book of bad deeds. The fourth book, oh, I love this fourth book, is the book of tears. It's a record of all the happy and sad events, the things that made us cry. There's happy tears and there's sad tears, and all of those tears are recorded in a book. Psalm 56, 19 says, You have recorded all my wanderings. You have put my tears in your bottle. A lot of us like to collect things. Tchotchkes, knickknacks, china, whatever. But uh, God likes to collect tears. They're precious to him. He has all of our tears numbered. And he has all of our tears that we ever cried bottled up somewhere in heaven. I wonder if when we get there that he's going to show us, hey, this is the bottle of tears. Wow! I cried a gallon. I cried five gallons. You know, some, some people have bigger vessels than others. So the book of tears. And that means that God cares. Why would anybody care about tears? God does. He records them. He wants to know what our happy events were, what our sad events were, what made us cry with joy and what made us cry with sadness. He cares because he wants to comfort and he wants to rejoice with us. The book of tears. The book of our body. Number five, the book of our body. This is a ledger of how many hairs we have on our head, how many cells in our body, how many limbs and digits and scars, everything about us. It says in Luke 12, 7, Indeed, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you are more valuable than, the, than many sparrows. This is kind of, you know, God, we, we insure things that we consider priceless. Okay, let's say that I had a Lamborghini. Maybe one of these 1980-something Lamborghinis that everybody wants and I've got it. Well, I'm going to insure the heck out of that because if anything ever happens to that, I want to get another one or get repaired or get compensated because I care about that. I wax it. I wash it. I vacuum it. I keep it in a, in a safe garage. So God sees us as that way. He cares what happens to us. Whenever you lost your fingers, whenever that was, chum, he recorded that. That's recorded. Now he's got how many digits or half digits you have. <laughs> He knew when I lost my hair, and he knows how many hairs I have on my head and on my chinny-chin-chin. So he knows about all that. He knows every single scar and what caused those scars. So it's kind of like, a, uh, like an insurance company or rental company. Have you ever rented a moving van or a car? Before you rent, the guy will come out with a clipboard, and he'll walk around that car. He'll mark every dent, every scratch. He'll check the mileage, how much gas is in the tank, because he wants to know exactly what that vehicle looked like before you took it out. So that when it comes back, it looks the same. 
the tank is full. So if there's any extra dents or dings, you have to pay for it because it's your fault. So it's kind of like that with God. He cares enough to have all of our body, soul, and spirit numbered and counted and ordered in his books, in his ledgers. So that shows how much he cherishes us. I don't think, you know, even though he knows when the sparrow falls, he doesn't have like a ledger that's recording, you know, every single feather of a sparrow or anything. He knows about it, but he records those things about us. Number six is the book of origins. To me, this is one of the most, even, even more so than the good deeds and bad deeds, this book scares me the most. And I think we're going to be judged quite harshly from the book of origins. It's a record of our origins, which means how accountable we are. For example, we who are born in the United States or in Canada are going to be held at a greater accountability than those that were born in North Korea or China. Why do you think that is? Right, because the gospel, the light of God, the knowledge of God is not prevalent in those countries. Those are closed countries against Christendom, against the Bible. But we were once considered Christian nations. There's a Bible in virtually every home. It's on the radio, on TV, on internet. Those things are censored in those other countries. So in Psalm 87.6, it says, Adonai will count in the register of peoples. This one was born here. And in Matthew eleven twenty three, And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to heaven? No, you will go down to Sheol, which is the Hebrew word for hell and the grave. For, for if the miracles done in you had been done in Sodom, it would remain to this day. Yeshua was saying that Capernaum is going to be judged harsher than Sodom because Capernaum had more light, had more knowledge of God, therefore they're, more, they're held more accountable. That's like at work. If you're a manager and you get paid the big bucks, if some little peon does something, he might get a little bit of punishment for that, but you as the manager are going to be held accountable because of his ignorance, because you are responsible for what he knows, what he does, what he doesn't do. The military commander, a captain that leads a platoon or a battalion, he's responsible for his men and their actions. And if they lose a battle or lose a war, he loses men, that's on him. So that's the same with us. We will receive a greater condemnation, a greater judgment because we know the truth. We have the light. We have everything at our disposal, more so than other nations of the world. And what are we doing with it? Are we out there preaching the gospel? Are we out there handing tracts? Are we telling our family, our friends, our loved ones? I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to lose friends. I don't want them to get mad. I don't want them to think that I'm a religious freak. Would you rather them end up in hell? And them say, well, well, my, my, my mom, my dad, my, my aunt, my uncle, my friend, they were Christians. Why didn't they tell me about this place? Why didn't they warn me? And if they've been warned, then they'll have no excuse when they're in hell. It will play over and over and over the accounts when you witness to them, when you minister to them, when you told them, pleading. So that is the book that scares me the most. So there is a heavenly court where the books are reviewed 
and judgments rendered. If I can find this book, I want to go to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3. And we'll see an instance of this heavenly court being played out. In verses 1 through 4, it says, Then he showed me Joshua. Interestingly enough, Joshua in the Hebrew is Yeshua. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, the Kohen Hagadol, standing before the angel of Adonai. The angel of Adonai, or the angel of the Lord, is just another name for Messiah Yeshua. It's Yeshua in pre-incarnate form before he was born to the Virgin Mary. It's because he was in eternity. Because in John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word. That's another name for Yeshua. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So it says, so the angel of the Lord is just a manifest presence. It is, it is, a, um, it is a sleeve, if you will. You know, like if, if um, like I can see out the window, there's a transformer on the telephone pole. Raw electricity would kill anybody. But because of that transformer, that killer electricity is somehow muted. And it's made safe so that I could flip on a light switch and not get electrocuted. So when Yeshua, or when God shows up through the angel of the Lord, his glory is tempered so it doesn't endanger human beings because no man can see God and live. And we see instances in Judges and other places in the scripture where somebody saw the angel of the Lord and said, Oh no, we saw God, we're going to die. Because they, they linked the angel of the Lord with God. So the angel of the Lord is, is, is Yeshua. Then he showed me Joshua, the Kohen Gadol, standing before the angel of Adonai and Satan, standing at his right hand to accuse him. Adonai said to Satan, Adonai rebukes you, Satan. Indeed, Adonai, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebukes you. Is not this the man, a, br a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was wearing filthy garments. Interesting. He was wearing filthy garments. We talked about that. And standing before the angel, who answered and spoke to those standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Then to Joshua he says, See, I have removed your iniquity. That word iniquity means lawlessness, Torahlessness. I have removed your iniquity from you and will dress you with fine clothing, which fine clothing or white garments symbolize righteousness. It's God's righteousness, not our righteousness. We're clothed with his righteousness. So we see this heavenly courtroom being played out in Zechariah 3, where the angel of the Lord is sort of like our defense attorney, and Satan is the accuser. And in Revelation 12.10, it says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. I remember one time... I was at a Messianic synagogue, and I came early, and the rabbi was there dealing with a woman who was demon-possessed. And as soon as I walked in, her head turned, and nobody was home. There was somebody different behind those eyes. And you know what the first thing out of her mouth was? It's all your fault! And I said, no, it's not, accuser of the brethren. <laughs> I thought that was kind of interesting. So... Uh, I also want to turn to Hebrews, book of Hebrews, and read something from chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Everybody still hanging with me? All right. Hebrews 10, 11, and 12. 
Indeed, every Kohen or every priest stands day by day serving and offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away the sins. But on the other hand, when the one offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. So this is talking about Yeshua, how his sacrifice trumps the sacrifices of the animals. Now, Hebrews also says that it was never meant for the for animals, the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It covered it. Just like he swept dirt under a rug so you couldn't see it. It was still there, but you just couldn't see it. God couldn't see the sin because it was covering the blood. Whereas every year these sacrifices had to be made. But Yeshua came once and for all, and he not only covered our sacrifice, he took it away. He obliterated it. So Yeshua is our sacrifice and now sits at God's right hand. Where did we read that, the, that who was at God's right hand in Zechariah? It was Satan there, standing there at his right hand accusing us. Satan has been deposed. Now who stands at the right hand? Our defense attorney, Yeshua the Messiah. So he sits at the right hand of God. In Acts chapter 7, 55, it talks about how Stephen saw Yeshua at the right hand of God when he was being martyred, being stoned to death. So in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 25, says this. Now on the one hand, many have become Kohenim, that is priests, who through death are prevented from continuing in office. But on the other hand, the one who does remain forever, has a permanent priesthood. So Yeshua is not a Levitical priest. That's the Johnny-come-lately of the priesthood. Yeshua is of the order of Melchizedek because he wasn't born a Levite. He was born from Judah. So Melchizedek is an older, more authoritative order of priesthood that Levi himself tithed to through Abraham before he was even born. So it says, but one on the other hand, the one who does remain forever has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save completely through those who draw near to God through him, always living to make intercession for them. Satan's always there saying he did this. She did that. Look at that. How can you let that slide? Oh, you're a holy God, a God of judgment. Why is this getting the green light? What? And Yeshua is, is, is on the other side saying, you know what? I paid it all. It's all under my blood. This person asked for forgiveness and believes in me. So Yeshua is our defense attorney interceding on our behalf. May we be sober and alert and take the remaining days of all between Feast of Trumpets and Day of Atonement and make things right with God and man before the books are closed for another year. So this is not just kind of some weird fairy tale story Jews come up with just to fill in these holidays. They have biblical precedence. And so every year, you know, we do this even in a non-religious way. January 1st, New Year's resolutions, turning over a new leaf, making changes, you know, making things right. Why, why do it then? Why, do, why not do it right now when, on God's calendar? When God said, Matthew 5, Yeshua says, I don't even think that I've come to do away with the law and the prophets. I've come to bring them into their full and complete meaning. So these are not Jewish holidays. It says these are the feasts of the Lord. So anybody that is connected to the Lord can celebrate them, should celebrate them.
because they are for them. And God said, these are my appointed times, my Mo'edim. I'm putting a date on my calendar, and I'm going to show up for dinner with my beloved. Is my beloved going to show up, or is my beloved going to stand me up? So we, the first five days of the Days of Awe is we review the Ten Commandments, because the first five commandments is our relationship with God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain, etc., etc. Number five is a transitionary commandment. Honor your father and mother. Well, God's our Heavenly Father, right? So it's a transitional commandment. So the last five commandments is our relationship with each other. So when you first make things right with God, then we make things right with each other. So in order to do that, what, we should, what should we be doing over the next several days here? Well, our Lord, our Messiah, our rabbi tells us in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17 says this. Now, if your brother may add sister as well, because brother is, you know, like mankind, it means everybody. Now, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault while you are with him alone. Make this a discreet private matter. You don't have to air this guy's dirty laundry or your dirty laundry between. You don't have to put it on Facebook. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen, take with you one or two more. And it's implied Two people that are not on your side or his side. Somebody that's neutral, that don't have a dog in the fight, if you will. But if he does not, take with you one or two more, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may stand. That's in the Torah. That's a Torah principle that's reiterated in the, in the renewed covenant. Verse 17, but if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to Messiah's community. And what the implication is here, not to stand up in front of a church servant and say, this guy would not forgive me and would not work things out. This guy did this. We need to. No, you bring it before what was called a bait dean. It's the ruling elders of that synagogue or church, that community. And they would actually hear both sides and render a judgment. So that's what is meant by that. But if he refuses to listen to them, the two or three witnesses, tell it to Messiah's community. And if he refuses to listen to even Messiah's community, let him be to you as a pagan or a tax collector. Not that you treat him like dirt. You just don't have fellowship with the person anymore. So that is one thing that we can be doing over the next several days before Yom Kippur. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 24, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering upon the altar, we bring a sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. Oh, Lord God, I worship you and I praise you. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering upon the altar and there remember, Lord, I pray. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Therefore, you remember that your brother has something against you. What's the big deal? I don't have anything against him. No, that's not important. He has something against you and you know it. That your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. If you don't have things right with your fellow man, is God going to accept your sacrifice? No. Because it's not an unblemished sacrifice. It's not a pure sacrifice. So those are the things that we could be doing. So in the spirit of these 10 days of all, I just want to formally ask your forgiveness if there's anything that I've done over the past year to hurt you, offend you, if I've done anything wrong or 
hurt you or slighted you in any way. Of course, it wasn't intentional. I don't know of anything, but if there is, please forgive me because I want things to be right between me and God, but also between me and you. There's a traditional Hebrew greeting that we say at this time, and I'll give you the short version because sometimes it's even hard for me to remember the long version. But it's Lashana Tova. Lashana Tova means may you be inscribed in the book of life for a sweet year. So that is my wish is Lashana Tova. I think it's Lashana Tova Tikatevu is the long version, but Lashana Tova is the short version. Everybody knows what you mean when you say that. So on Yom Kippur, the books are closed. And whatever has been decreed and determined by the Lord for you that year, that's what's going to happen. Sometimes we wonder why people die. According to, you know, rabbinic tradition, some people die during some years is because of the decisions that were made on Yom Kippur. But you know what? It's we've got we've got the whole month of Elul and we've got the 10 days of all between Feast of Trumpets and Yom Kippur to take care of that. And what I don't like is everybody treating Yom Kippur like it's some sort of oh, so sad and somber, serious day. I mean it is. But if your sins forgiven, what do you have to be sad and mournful about? Now, it does say that we are to fast on that day if medically possible. I know there's some people who can't, and that's fine. God knows. He understands. But we are to afflict our souls. In other words, we are to uh, put all of our energies towards prayer and to study of Scripture and God and tell our body to shut up. You're not important today. And when we afflict our souls, like, be so busy praising God, thanking God, that you don't even think about food. Sometimes when I'm studying the scriptures, I'll have a cup of coffee, and then I'll look at the clock, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't even eat lunch. I didn't even eat breakfast. I just had a cup of coffee, and time goes by, and I, I'm not, I don't even feel the hunger because I'm so entrenched in God's word. So when the Day of Atonement comes, it can be a happy day, a day of rejoicing, a day of celebration, because your name, you know, you know that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And you know that whatever else is written in those other books really don't matter if you have the blood applied to your life. It doesn't matter if the book of bad deeds is larger than your book of good deeds. I think the only book that you got to really work on and pay attention to is your, or your book of origins because you are held accountable by your light. I, I challenge each and every one of you this year to try to, to, to be more expressive in your faith, to try to witness more. Don't worry about what other people think or say or how many friends you lose. If you lose friends because you witness to them, they weren't your friends. I appreciate certain atheists like uh, um, Penn and Teller, uh, Gillette Penn, uh, the magician. He's a devout atheist, but he says, you know what? I appreciate it when Christians come up to me and, 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 and try to convert me. Because it shows that they care about my soul and they're serious about their faith. Gene Simmons of KISS said virtually the same thing. So I appreciate honest atheists that know that we mean well. We're not just trying to, you know, rack up numbers, you know, for our kingdom. But we really want to see people saved and not go to hell. And if that's what we truly, sincerely believe, we should be out there. I, me included, I'm guilty. I could find more excuses to stay home than to go out. But I'm going to force myself to try to be, and I, I envy in a sense. I'm a little bit jealous of Aaron because he's got that gift of evangelism. He's a way better evangelist than I ever could be or will be. And he just knows how to slip into the conversation and share the Lord with somebody. And that's what we need to be doing this year because when we stand before God, didn't you live in Canada? 
Didn't you have the Word of God? Didn't you have a neighborhood full of lost friends? A family, a, a family, a house full of lost people. What did you do to change that? That's what I'm concerned about when I stand before God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you once again for your calendar. We want to thank you, Lord, that these appointed times are for us, for everybody who believes in you and believes in your Son. We thank you, Lord, for what we're learning in the Scriptures. We thank you, Lord, for what you're showing us, how you're convicting us, how you're changing our hearts and our lives and our minds. We ask, Lord, that you just give us the faith and give us the strength to remain faithful to you, to carry out those things that you're convicting us even now in our heart to do, because we know where we failed you even if nobody else knows. We want to thank you ultimately for the sacrifice of your son, Messiah Yeshua, that, 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 that expunges our records and makes us righteous and clean before you when we can't, can't do anything in of ourselves to do that. And Lord, I know that if I get to heaven and I don't have that many rewards, I'm just going to be happy to be there. But I would love to have rewards and to have people come up to me and say, I'm here because of you. I'm here because you had the guts to say something. You had the guts to share Jesus with me. That's why I'm here. That would be the best reward of all. I don't care about mansions. I don't care about crowns or jewels. We can't take money with us, but we can take people with us. And I pray that's exactly what we do. Yavarakadonai Vishmarecha Yaher Adonai Panavalecha Vechunecha Yisa Adonai Panavalecha Veyasem Lecha Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Bashem Yeshua Moshenu, in the name of Yeshua our Messiah. Amen. Shavua Tov. Have a great week. And Lashana Tova. Tikatevu. May your names be inscribed in the Lamb's Book of Life.